0: Investment Management Operations is brought to you by Inteligo. Inteligo is the premier due diligence platform delivering innovative pre-investment background checks and continuous subject monitoring for some of the most sophisticated asset allocators. Their individual and company background check reports blend the critical discernment of human experts with cutting-edge AI, ensuring you receive the most thorough and rapid insights. Groups like Common Fund, Adam Street Partners, Felicitous Global Partners, and past Capital Allocators guests Hamilton Lane, AIM 13, and NEPC leverage Intelligo to mitigate risk and enhance their operational due diligence process. Visit intelligo.ai to learn more. I'm Ted Sides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at CapitalAllocators.com.
1: I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's show is Byron Pavano. Byron Pavano is a managing director of fund strategy and counsel for Audex Group, one of the most active private equity firms in North America with $16 billion in assets under management. Our conversation covers Byron's path from outside counsel for private fund clients to in house counsel at Audex, insourcing versus outsourcing. Dealing with a regulatory landscape across countries and managing communications. We discuss AI disruption and use cases, the Audax deal process, and the operational interplay between operations and investment teams. We close on ESG, DEI, and some great advice on how people in high-performance organizations manage themselves and their relationships with investment-oriented founders. Please enjoy... My conversation with Byron Pavano. Byron, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Let's dive in and tell us about your background and your current role.
2: I went to Boston College and Boston College Law School. And then I clerked for a judge for a couple of years down in New Jersey, where I'm from. So clerked in the federal district court down there and then came back up to Boston. So this was... 2000, so kind of the height of the tech explosion, if you will, joined a firm called Gunderson Detmer that was doing a lot of VC deals and VC funds, and then moved over to a bigger platform that was doing some of the same stuff over at Testa Hurwitz. And then a number of us, when Testa finished up, the lion's share of us went over to Goodwin. So I was a partner at Goodwin Proctor for several years. And from Goodwin, I moved here to Audax Group So now we have Audex private equity and Audex private debt, all focused on United States middle market, basically.
1: Back to Testa. So with that firm actually shut down, that doesn't usually happen too often. So I'd love to poke on that a little bit.
2: The firm did dissolve. The lion's share of the partners went to Goodwin. Some went to Proskauer and some went to some other places It was one of those instances where sometimes in a partnership, the fabric of the partnership can get frayed over time, and it was time to allow the partners there to have a reset. Since then, people have gone on from there to have extremely successful careers at other law firms that TESTA was profitable right until the point of dissolution. It wasn't fiscal management or anything like that. It was that as among the partners, they decided that it would be more fruitful to bring their practices to other places. So that's what they did.
1: And you went to Goodwin as a result of the partner you went with?
2: At the time, there were several partners that were going to Proscow or several partners that were going to Goodwin. Those were the primary places where people went. So I had a choice. At that time, I liked the idea of joining Goodwin that was at that time, based in Boston, I liked the idea of being at the mothership office, whereas Proskauer was a smaller satellite office. I liked the idea of being in the main office. And Goodwin, as it does today, has diverse investment management practice, among other things. So I like the idea of doing that quite a bit. Well,
1: at Goodwin, can you talk a little bit about your work on fund formation, investment management work?
2: It was a great mix. Goodwin, as it does today, has a great mix of practices there. So there I focused on doing some VC funds, some hedge funds, some private equity funds, and the related regulatory registered investment advisor, stuff that comes along with forming and operating those funds while at Goodwin. It was a really interesting time. At that time, of course, we were working on the replicating of the endowment strategy where underlying the funds that we worked on, they could invest as an endowment would and try to generate the outsized returns that endowments do by investing in higher returning strategies across by diversity of things and then put overlays above traditional funds assets. So to try and achieve that endowment-like long-term horizon, very steady but still high returning type of a portfolio.
1: What made you go over to Onyx?
2: There was that inflection point in my personal life where it was, am I going to redouble my efforts to build a practice at a law firm, which is for the people that can do it. It certainly can be quite lucrative, but it does demand a lot of you. That was one path that certainly was interesting to think about. The other path is just probably make less money, but have more predictability to your schedule and be able to do more family dinners and things like that and go in-house. And so an opportunity came up at Audax, came to hear about it word of mouth, which is how these positions, in-house positions, they really these days tend to be passed around by word of mouth more than anything else, especially for the more high quality positions. And so found out about the spot and came and talked to them and Now it's been 10 years that I've been at Audax, which went by pretty fast. Um, Managing director strategy and counsel, there's still a counsel at the end to make sure that attorney-client privilege stuff receives that treatment, and I still do some legal work alongside a lot of product development and product strategy work and helping to craft what products should look like for our investors.
1: Give people an overview about Audax.
2: Audax was started about 23, 24 years ago, and it started as a middle market private equity firm, but basically also at the outset started its private debt business. So the private debt business is based in New York, and the private equity business has offices in San Francisco, Boston, and now New York, and now London as well. Our latest fund will end up being probably somewhere in that $5 billion range. And then on the private equity side, we also have smaller mid-market private equity deals. We have a fund that invests in the junior debt of our deals. And then we recently launched a strategic equity business that will provide strategic equity capital to sponsors in the form of non-controlled minority investments, typically at a key inflection point for a company. So I'm just going to do a scale add-on for whatever reason, the primary sponsor, maybe because diversification requirements or whatever it may be, doesn't have the full check available. And so we'll provide additional equity capital there in that strategic equity business that we just launched. And then on the private debt side, we have about $13 billion in the ground right now. And we can underwrite to really anything in the middle market private debt. Ecosystem. So traditional first lien debt, second lien debt, mezzanine debt, unit tranche, and all the flavors in between preferred securities. And now with this strategic equity capital business can also layer in that for sponsors. And so that business, its focus is on providing great service to other PE sponsors who are not Audax and providing them with debt capital. And we do club deals there on that side with the market-leading originating shops and play in that U.S. middle market private debt ecosystem. That at a high level, we're about a little over 300 employees at this point spread across those offices that I mentioned. And how
1: does that break down by division, like compliance, legal, finance?
2: We have various functions internally, as you had kind of laid out. So there are CFOs for each of our businesses. So Audex Group, which is the mothership business of our co founders, has its CFO. And then private equity has its CFO, and private debt has its own dedicated CFO. And they sit together and communicate together as peers across the three CFOs. Underneath each of them are teams of various sizes. The Audax Group CFO is also the management company CFO. And also runs like our employee co-invest program through that CFO function. Private equity CFO, that's for our private equity fund and our other funds. And then also oversees all the operations related to the deal work, private equity deal work. And we do a lot of add-ons every year. We're constantly near the top of the league table for add-ons. And so that finance function underneath the private equity CFO ends up doing a lot of work as the outsourced finance function for our portfolio companies when they're closing all of these add-ons. And then primarily in New York, although also a significant number of people in Boston sit on the private debt finance team. So there are those three functional areas sitting underneath CFOs. Then there's a separate tax function. So we have a head of tax and then we have another tax attorney and then a senior tax compliance person. And they're probably up to around eight people now. And we're producing thousands and thousands of tax returns every year for our various holding entities. So it's a very large systems slash tax administration operation over there where we do some outsourcing of that work as well. Then we have a single chief compliance officer who sits across both private equity and private debt, and he is assisted by... Other senior compliance professionals, one for private equity, another for private debt primarily, that help out there. So that's kind of a three-person compliance team, although they get a lot of support from the organization otherwise. Our finance folks know the key compliance issues to flag. Our deal team knows. So they, in effect, act as an extension of the compliance team. Separate chief information officer and systems person. We're both managing directors as well. Separate function over there, overseeing everything from cybersecurity to software vendor engagements that they would oversee. Then we have our IR team that sits as a separate group. Of course, the deal team as well. And then private equity probably has the most build-out infrastructure around valuations, financial planning, and analysis. Those separate functional areas as well. There hasn't been the same demand or need for it on the debt side as there has been on the equity side.
1: How is it different from being on the inside versus being outside providing advice?
2: The luxury of being inside is that my goal can be the business goal. They can be one and the same. Whereas for the law firm, their goal is fundamentally different, just as important, but different. The law firm is there to provide advice informed by whatever the rules are. And yes, they need to provide practical advice as well, but the law firm, it's their job much more to tell us what market terms are, to lay out what the parameters are for us to then weigh relative risk and reward. The law firm isn't going to go so far usually as to say you should do X, Y, or Z, they'll lay out the various options and the pros and cons of them based upon whatever the context is. So at the end of the day, the mission for me now in-house is get to closure with an investor or to help an investor understand why it is that they should do business with us. And that business goal can be the goal. And it's informed by the legal context, but it's not purely driven by the legal context. Whereas on the law firm side, as it has to be, I want them to be focused purely on the legal aspects, keeping practical advice in mind. We work with various outside counsel at a range of different types of counsel. So we work with kind of a range of the very high priced counsel and the more cost effective counsel. We also work with a solo practitioner who's a friend from my Goodwin days and he's an extension of the legal team for us. And it is very, very helpful in that regard. He's hung a shingle and can provide that partner level of service when we don't need to do something complicated, but we need that help, which now he provides to us on a weekly basis. So it's a nice extension of the legal team, again, with somebody that has the partner level expertise and judgment. So that's very helpful.
1: Do you put a lot of scrutiny on the advice you get or have you found... Partners that you just like to work with because you know them and trust them?
2: It's a mix. Because again, even the best of partners, their bias will be toward providing the legal perspective almost purely. Even with the best of partners, I always like to be alongside them in talking with the business folks. It's more efficient that way. We're partnering up with that partner at the law firm. And we're each bringing something to the table. The partner at the law firm is bringing the technical expertise and knowledge of recent developments that I don't have because that's their job to track all of that and to be experts at the details. And for my part, integrating that with the business is something that they can't do as well just because they're not as close. So it's nice when, if we do get together with the business folks on a call, we each have our roles to play on the call. And it works out pretty well. Is there anything you outsource? We're much more of an insourcing shop than an outsourcing shop. And that just happened organically, where we have outside administrators for our funds, but only on selected funds. So no real outside administration at any scale right now. So our funds are all in-house administered. We outsource, as I said, some tax compliance because just given the volume, it's impossible to insource all of that. So we work with CBiz on an outsourced basis for the tax compliance. Otherwise, there's not a whole lot of outsourcing going on for us in the current iteration. Also, we've just found that the organization just stylistically loves to have control over the data that we're generating, and the managing director team has become accustomed to a very high level of responsiveness and a high level of service. And outsource firms can certainly provide that. I would say that it's in a different style where it, in-house, the communication can be so informal and so fast that it leads to efficiency. Whereas with an outsource provider, again, they're perfectly capable and very intelligent and able to scale well. They also tend to just move a little more slowly, they have to move with more formality in what they do. So as a result, the quick, pithy answers tend to be harder to come by. We need to continue to explore outsourcing in a thoughtful way to continue to grow the business. There are at least three or four ongoing work streams simultaneously at all times on the pro and con of various outsourcing initiative. Sometimes it's a whiteboarding discussion around something really comprehensive between operations and finance, what it would look like to outsource it. And sometimes it's very discreet in terms of outsourcing for a specific function or a specific fund.
1: With the growth of the London office, did that change your work streams? Obviously, it's got implications on the regulatory.
2: The service providers that we worked with we're very familiar with the walk before you run approach and doing the adequate and satisfactory but minimum amount of compliance and regulatory infrastructure work that would need to be done as we were starting that office. So we're one employee now there will grow to several employees this year in that London office. But you're right, it was an entirely new kettle of fish and UK-specific, of course, in terms of the regulatory requirements. But between registration and setting up of bank accounts and the migration from having no employees to having one employee and what would be required for that and what's going to be done out of that office as a result of having a single-deal employee there and not wanting to do too much too soon in terms of building out independent UK-registered advisor infrastructure, which wouldn't be necessary in the short term, and being able to leverage an existing service provider there and their UK registration so that we can kind of ramp the dollar investment into that office over time and leg it over time. The service providers that we used were very good at calibrating around that so that you could rent expertise or rent registration status before we would need to acquire it for ourselves.
1: Over the 10 years you've been there, I mean, you are now at 300 employees. How do you manage communications?
2: That's definitely gotten more complicated over time, where now we have teams, we have email. We're still a very email-centric organization, I would say, but with the emergence of teams as well, we haven't gotten into platforms like Slack. And just starting to dip our toe into other technologies that where necessary need to be archived and using those. So I'd say it's still heavily email driven, which has its own pros and cons. Within certain working groups, shared folder systems that also act as a means of communication. But even there, I'd say we're much more heavily reliant on email versus shared folder systems, although those certainly do exist as well. We probably have to migrate away from email here pretty soon, and which we will over time. You can see where the team's messaging and things like that. There is definitely some efficiency to it.
1: Anything else on the tech stack that's worth noting?
2: We are now putting a lot of focus on artificial intelligence and the various projects, ChatGBT being the most famous, but... We're now dedicating real resources to chat GPT-like projects that can be brought behind the firewall where, in a secure way, those projects can be given access to our proprietary documents, information, data, Excel, spreadsheets, whatever format the information is in, to be able to start to train ourselves up, really, on how to use those technologies effectively because we see it also at peer firms and certainly also at larger firms where Wall Street firms now are allowing some teams to have a ChatGPT plugin on their machines. And you can point it at proprietary data, spreadsheets and so forth, and be able to have it digest that information in the way that it does in that generative AI type style. Of course, the news is replete with stories of successes and not quite ready yet and things like that. But as I was talking with my friend, who is a very senior tech executive, he said, you very quickly go through this evolution where you ask ChatGPT a question that you definitely know the answer to. And it comes back and it confirms that It's working properly. Basically, it can understand a basic natural language question, and it gives you the answer that you already knew. And then you ask it a question that you think you know the answer to, but you're not sure, and you kind of iterate from that. And then you ask it a question that you have no idea what the answer is, and just see what it comes back with. For us, one of the eye-opening moments was when on the system side, we asked it, a not Audax-specific question about uh, programming solve. We were doing some programming development. And internally, we had developed an answer to the question that took about 8 to 10 full-time employee hours all in, spread across a few people. And ChatGPT came back with the same answer that we had generated in 30 seconds or whatever it was. So for certain use cases, that's actually pretty common these days especially around things like a programming puzzle or similar, those stories are no longer anecdotal about that. And especially for our younger deal team members, they are hearing from peer firms and they are talking to each other about how much time can be saved in interfacing with something like that because as good as an expert network call can be, there are no expert network people that have read and understood and can remember every single public filing for the type of company that you're talking about. It's just not humanly possible. And for the machine, it is. And you can see the statistics around that six months ago, the AI failed the advanced calculus, advanced placement exam. And now it's getting a 50% score on the same exam. And it'll be six months from now before it gets a 100% score on the AP calculus exam. It's moving really fast. You can tell I'm kind of excited about it.
1: If I'm a new analyst, am I going to be just a skeptic on ChatGPT or other AI-like format?
2: I hope they're not a skeptic. I hope they treat it instead as, this is going to dramatically impact how I do my work. Within the bounds of what my organization allows, how can I learn to make myself a better analyst using this technology? Whether it's Before I get on the expert network call, I'm going to ask it this question. Now I know how to have a more effective conversation with somebody on that expert network call. Or it's going to help me organize my thoughts around my next conversation with the managing director on something that I was asked to analyze. If there's a data set that comes in from a portfolio company and you're trying to figure out the most productive locations of all the dentists in all the network. There are 500 dentists in the network. Which dentists are doing the best job of generating profits in the most efficient way? You can ask that question of those interfaces. And now that slide that I was going to produce for the managing director around profitability of dentists, I can be complimented in that by the ad. Uh, that's what I hope that the analyst does is says, This is here to stay in a big way. It's as fundamental a change as the internet itself. How do I give myself some superhuman powers through this? Because I think if you ignore it or you push it to the side, it'll push back eventually.
1: So if you kind of play this out, it seems like the next iteration will be more of a focus on having an IT approach in-house. So it's no longer just a cyber and networking issue, but you might have... An evolution of like, well, we need more people to help us bring this behind the wall to actually harmonize this data.
2: Almost like an in house AI optimization expertise, whether you outsource that or you insource that. I think that that's right. That the evolution is from how do I prevent people from exporting proprietary data into it and instead say, well, how do I bring a project behind the firewall and who can help me do that in an intentional way? so that then my employees can start to point it at the data. Again, as a friend said to me, he fed into it a productivity spreadsheet of a very large team that he was managing, and he said he didn't ask it anything except tell me what you see. He didn't say, who's the most productive? Just tell me what you see. What insights do you glean from this spreadsheet? They were actionable insights gleaned from that question that he didn't have before, and that he would not have thought to ask about. He was hooked.
1: I'd love to get your thoughts on just what the Audax investment process is like on a deal.
2: The changes for private equity versus private debt, but for the investment process on the private equity side, we'll start with industry context, typically at the managing director level. We've been a part of the ecosystem in the middle market now for over two decades. Each of the intermediaries at this point has a very good knowledge of our managing director team and knows exactly who to reach out to with a given transaction. And we can tell now relatively quickly whether we're going to spend time on a transaction. And so it'll get staffed up with a deal team side, you know, NDA in place and so forth. And then we'll spend some preliminary amount of time just to understand whether it could be a fit for a platform. And that might take several weeks. There's kind of an initial vetting process internally that's more informal among the managing directors and the deal teams. Say, listen, here's what we are seeing so far. We know this type of business. We know the type of questions to ask. No red flags so far, but what should we be following up on? It then moves through kind of an iterative process of being bubbled up, bubbled back down again, maybe once, and then maybe bubbled up once more with some follow-up questions over the course of a month or two long period depending on how quickly the deal is moving, and then ultimately would be approved by a consensus of the managing directors on the deal side. And during that time, there's probably a 20-page deck that gets prepared and then a 40-page deck that gets prepared with a lot of analysis happening. And alongside that, before closing, now we have internal expertise in terms of validating the earnings of the company and also doing that operational due diligence is so important. We used to outsource that more, we brought it in-house. Again, because we're executing on a very large number of transactions on the private equity side. Our next fund may have 40 or more platform companies in it, and each of those platform companies is gonna do multiple add-ons. That due diligence team will proceed alongside the deal team once we've established that we're interested. Then we'll move through the typical closing process. And along the way, you know, we're using best of breed international law firms for our deal work. At this point, the in-house legal team will oversee the outside legal team and be available to cut back on the number of questions that need to be bubbled up to the deal team. So that's what our in-house legal team on the deal side can handle a tremendous throughput of transactions because they're overseeing add-ons as well as platforms. So they're able to process transactions at a fantastic rate, so they'll do that alongside. But our deal teams have very good working relationships directly with outside counsel. Only the hardest questions then need to go to the in-house counsel. And then on the private debt side, it's in some ways similar, but just given the nature of the process, we're sitting on the club debt side. It can be relatively quick. And there's much more of a desktop-type decision. We're not going out and visiting portfolio companies, but we're still doing private equity style due diligence, even on the traditional club senior debt side. If you looked at our review materials, they look and feel like private equity style due diligence, although moving much more quickly and not at the same level of depth. And then for what we call our origination side, that looks and feels a lot like a private equity process where we might attend an expert network call. We might certainly engage with a sponsor and the management team around a particular credit before it gets brought up to a separate IC. So we have two IC processes, one for private equity and one for private debt. Certainly, firms deal with this all the time too. Of course, we have information barriers between the two, just given that private debt is supporting those third-party sponsors and not Audax Private Equity. And Audax Private Equity can be actually bidding in a deal, competing with the sponsor that private debt is supporting. So as a result, we have these information barriers between the two business lines.
1: From an operational perspective, like what's the interplay between the operations team and the investment team?
2: It depends on the context. As it relates to new product formation, we are conferring with the operations team very early on to understand the burdens on us as an organization especially when we're looking at a new structure, a new fund structure. If we're going to bring an Irish entity online, what are those burdens going to be on the team? If we're going to start a BDC, what are the burdens? Certainly heavy-duty burdens on the team. If we're going to start a new business line, what information barriers need to be put in place that are going to impact the IT team? So they're brought in very early on and... The way that we describe it is that we're matrixed, where you end up having relatively senior people and having quite a few of them on some of the early calls, you know, multiple people at the managing director level in terms of operations. So that's on the new product development side. On the investment side, right now, our operations and systems are so intertwined with our deal side at this point in terms of being able to allow the deal team to efficiently produce content for review or being able to efficiently translate information from one source to another, whether it's Excel or iLevel or Black Mountain or other platforms. They all need to speak to each other to be able to then, you know, talking about communication before, seamlessly communicate in the organization. And so our head of systems, he's now intimately involved. And that's really the part of operations that's most relevant to your question is systems, where he's deeply integrated across the entire organization. It's almost like there aren't enough hours in the day to try to make sure that the systems are keeping up with the demand. And that's the biggest part. The other operational part that's become quite intensive for us is, again, that in-house finance team acts as an extension of our portfolio company finance teams as they're closing add-ons and as they're going through realizations, there is a heavy operational element to that as well. In terms of communication too, we will do a daily meeting at nine o'clock with kind of the key finance operations systems, compliance, legal folks, not everyone, but some key ones. And then once a week, we get together with a bigger group It's not intended to be your to-do list for the day. It's, hey, we're going to demo a new system, so you're going to hear about that from the systems person. Or here's an update on the SEC exam and how it's going from the compliance group. Or we're hiring someone new, so you're going to see a new face. And that allows us across the support finance areas to just keep in contact with each other and not get too deeply siloed.
1: What's a day in the life for Byron?
2: Wake up try to get some exercise in, make breakfast for our daughters, get them out to school, and then these days, three days a week, commute to work, give or take, and two days a week, go down to the home office. We're on a hybrid schedule at this point. Once engaged, then it will be typically a mix of internal and external calls and meetings where it could be that On one call, we're going over the proposed structure with an investor and make sure they like it for a new product. The next call might be an ESG update, I help to oversee our ESG program on private debt side, and then an internal call to talk about product development project that we're working on to try to maybe launch a new project, and then a question about how to efficiently do something on an existing fund. Get on a call with an LP to negotiate the final points of a side letter sometimes. That's kind of the range. There can be lots of other stuff in there too.
1: On the deal side, are you involved with the deal or are you above it?
2: Maybe neither. There are separate transactional attorneys that oversee our transactions that are very senior at this point. We have attorneys that focus on private debt transactions, including the debt of our own private equity portfolio companies. And then we have attorneys that focus on the equity portion of the transactions and then also function as outsourced general counsels for our portfolio companies that don't have their own GC. So I don't get involved with transactional work per se, except perhaps now more in this strategic capital business that has some very fund-like elements to it. I'm much more on that strategy investment management side.
1: On the LP side, what's the sentiment today?
2: There are so many funds and LPs have subscribed to so many funds at this point that a lot of LPs now, they have their own in-house counsel and they want to deal with in-house counsel on our side. That's changed over the last 10 years where before it might've been outside counsel dealing with outside counsel. I suppose some firms still work that way. But with a lot of increasing frequency, I'm opposite someone or working with someone either on the deal team at an investor or on the legal side at an investor to try to get something done just because we're able to speak with each other with a level of candor and efficiency that sometimes gets lost when outside counsel are interacting with each other because their role is a bit different. So I think that's definitely changed as it relates to LPs. And processes now with LPs, depending on the LP, do take longer than they used to in that now LPs as good fiduciaries, they're looking at, yes, the deal team, yes, the track record. But relatively quickly, I think they can get a handle on that. Then they are also going to look at sometimes in pretty good depth, your level of robustness around your cybersecurity, and the other functions that are not necessarily purely deal team related. We have a group that works on portfolio company efficiency for us. That's in many ways, just as important as the deal team is in terms of then executing on strategies. The larger LPs have large teams, they're looking at us in various areas in depth, sometimes they're outsourcing due diligence as well. If we have the right things in place, there isn't the expectation that there would ever be any issue per se, but nevertheless, we do get looked at. The other thing that is definitely different is, again, on the ESG side, where European LPs in particular now are extremely focused on ESG and having in place existing ESG programs, but then also having a pretty clear vision of where we're headed as an organization and being able to lay that out. And they're very sophisticated about it, too, in that they're not asking us to have everything in place today to operate a green fund or to lend money using ESG-related criteria. They realize that the ecosystem, especially in the U.S., is several years behind the European ecosystem. It just is. But at the same time, you know, they have high expectations for us as a manager. We now have a dedicated person for ESG on the private equity side, a dedicated person on the private debt side. And that portfolio optimization group that we have, ESG sits within that function, given the closeness with which they need to operate with portfolio companies. On the private debt side, it sits as kind of its own function, given that we don't own the portfolio companies on the private debt side and you're interacting with companies one step removed from being able to be the controlling owner how does oddx define esg it's different functional milestones so first there's definitely a heavy emphasis on investment selection and screening and then on the private equity side we're using third-party due diligence providers To review every one of our platform investments so now every new platform investment receives an esg review on the private equity side and they're going to look at emissions as compared with peers they're going to look at the level of program they have in place at the portfolio company level what are they doing to remediate any past issues things like that during the due diligence process and then post close As the control owner, we're able to set goals for each portfolio company in terms of improving governance over time, improving compliance over time. And it's across all the typical ESG areas, whether it's increased diverse representation in the boardroom and on the management team. There is a heavy emphasis across the platform on how to achieve zero emissions over some reasonable time period and making a pledge to that. What we hear a lot these days from investors is, how can UAUDX encourage leading to a zero emissions economy? Because of course, for the larger insurers, it is not merely about doing the right thing economically, it's absolutely imperative for them that there are changes made at a systemic level, at a global level. They want to see investment on our part moving toward a zero emissions world. So that's, I think, been a focal area. And then everything else around it in terms of assessing risks of given industries with industry-specific criteria, whether it's the SASB criteria or otherwise, a lot of focus on that. And what's that SASB? The SASB criteria, it's Standard Accounting Standards Board or similar. Basically, they came up with very helpful tools that help to know where to focus For a given industry, where should your ESG due diligence focus so that if you have, again, a dentistry roll-up or something like that, you're not going to worry about necessarily emissions from vehicles as much as you would if you had a fleet of vehicles for service providers that are going to be plumbers and driving everywhere. What are the emissions associated with driving to job sites? Or if you have a kitchen supply logistics company. What does that fleet look like from an emissions perspective? So the SASB criteria can be used to help keep diligence focused and industry specific. There are only so many hours in a day. And so within a given industry, you wanna focus on the areas that move the needle and those criteria, those SASB criteria help with that.
1: Do you see DEI coming into the conversation more often?
2: Yeah, DEI, and it can be a subset of ESG or it can be its own topic but certainly an emphasis on DEI due diligence, understanding what we as an organization are doing to encourage a diverse workforce and use a diverse workforce. And some very candid discussions with LPs along the way, if they don't see a diversity of people at the uppermost levels of the organization. On the support side is wonderful, but also on the deal side, understanding that the core function of the organization is to invest and manage as a good fiduciary the investment that we get. Since that's the core mission, you should have a diverse workforce that is responsible for the core mission of the organization, in addition to people that are supporting that mission in the organization. So there's certainly a lot more questions about that and more diverse teams from investors as well. And as a result, wanting more from us. And then at the portfolio company level, certainly some interest in seeing progress in the boardroom at the executive level. In our recruiting, when we're recruiting for folks here, DEI is certainly a consideration in terms of as among qualified candidates wanting to be cognizant of DEI considerations, doing training on unconscious bias to make sure that we're as much as possible and getting better over time, analyzing candidates without unconscious bias entering into the analysis. And also, as it relates to the deal team, of course, we've been around for more than two decades. You want to promote from within, LPs want to see people that have a high level of experience and low turnover at the organization. So if there aren't already women in the uppermost levels, as an example, You have to build this pipeline. We need to build a pipeline of people that can be promoted from within and then result in that more diverse workforce and diverse leadership over time.
1: That's a great segue here on hiring operating professionals. And in your mind, what are the skills that you need to be successful at a firm like Audix?
2: What we look for in terms of operating professionals is a track record of success, in the industry that we're looking at in the role that we're looking at because the positions at those portfolio companies are in demand positions and what our group that handles this function has is a very sophisticated approach now and a very sophisticated rolodex of people in the industries where we focus so they have a very good sense of who the players are and we'll keep track of people in a given industry for years before they might come and have an interview with us for a given position. And then depending on the role, we're doing the psychological testing. Sometimes for a very high profile CEO role, there may be a multi-hour psychological exam associated with the interview process for that role, looking for people to have that robust psychology to be able to deal with the inevitable ups and downs of the role. For us on the private equity side, we're making a very limited number of bets across a fund. So if we have 40 CEOs, let's say, in a fund, give or take, each of those CEOs becomes incredibly important to the success of that fund. And what about
1: operating people in-house? So the operations staff, Uh, how do you make a distinction there?
2: There, I think it's very role specific with operating people The paradigmatic case is a controller that the only reason why she's not the CFO is that the CFO hasn't retired. And just by happenstance, the controller's there, but there's no room for her to go because the CFO is going to be there for another 10, 15 years. But the controller is ready to be the CFO that day. It's only structurally why she isn't. That's a very attractive hire for us is they're already doing the job just without the title. When we're putting together a spec for a job, we have a very good sense and go through a pretty in-depth analysis process of developing the spec and what exactly the person needs to do. And then again, it's a many multiple round interview process. Because we're a matrixed organization, that person needs to come in and meet with people outside their functional area and be able to give the impression that they're a good team player. As it relates to those people. The way that I describe it a lot of times is that you have to be able to ebb and flow. There are some times when your voice will be the most important voice to the discussion. And then there are other times when your voice isn't important, but your listening really is. And the right people at the more senior operational roles, they flow with that. Being able to communicate effectively across functional areas for our more senior operational roles, becomes one of the most important skills. So we look for a lot of heavy-duty expertise on the nuts and bolts of your area, and then can you ebb and flow in communications with others, especially if it's a hire into the team, because now the tenure of the people on our team is pretty long. We've had relatively low turnover at the senior levels, and so... There are people here with a lot of established expertise, so you got to be able to kind of come in and play well with all those people. Any advice for lawyers thinking about going in-house? Keep your ears open. These jobs don't come along often. And of the jobs that do come along, they're not all created equal by any means. There are some jobs that you may not want to have as much as making that in-house jump is hard and you're tempted to run toward the first thing that's open, be careful what you wish for, because there are some jobs that you wouldn't find terribly engaging to do. I think you've gotta understand the organization well, and then once you're there, if you do get that in-house job that you wanted, as long as you can, try to be in listen mode, especially if it's a well-run, successful organization, They were already doing a lot right before you got there. And now you're coming into that well run organization. So you can probably learn far more from them than they can learn from you on balance. And so as you go into the organization, find every opportunity to listen to the people around you and just try and sponge it all up in that first six month period or whatever it is. If you're worth what you hope you're worth, You'll find opportunities to add value, but you don't need to do it on day one. And you'll find a lot more opportunities to grow. And you'll figure out a lot more what the organization actually needs by coming in and listening.
1: And turning to the founder. So if you have an investment oriented founder, any suggestions on how to make that relationship work?
2: Whatever I said about listening, multiply it by 10. (laughs) The founder, CEO, again, in the investment management industry in particular, if they've been successful, they have a pretty clear-eyed view on what they think and what they believe and what their opinions are going to be. And at the same time, everybody's human. And so you have to figure out with them, what's their communication style? What do they want your communication style to be? How often do they want to hear from you? And In many ways, be what the founder needs you to be. If the founder needs you to be more vocal, be more vocal. If the founder needs you to execute and send simple status update emails, be that. But be what the founder wants you to be because at the end of the day, it's her organization, it's his organization. So you need to be what the organization needs. That's what I was saying. Every founder is different in that way. And 10 times out of 10, successful founders of investment firms have their quirks because that's who they are. They've been successful, they're definitive. Know that going in. And by the way, you as a person, you have your own quirks. Just ask your spouse. So just hang in there. And in our industry, in a high pressure, High performance industry, you have to be willing to be thick skinned and to be able to kind of take your lumps. And that's just how it is.
1: Well, Byron, this has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Is there any resource, material, video that you share with people on a consistent basis that's industry related?
2: I still do believe in at least looking at the front page on the web of the Wall Street Journal every day to get a sense of the tenor of the market. I still believe in that. I know that's a little old school. I do believe in a lot of the content aggregation and what's relevant to you. What's an example of that? Even to have the Wall Street Journal do a search for you every day on the relevant topics for you, setting up well-defined, even regular Google searches and things like that, training some of the law firms to send you the stuff that's of interest to you They'll blast you with stuff, but then if you get a good relationship going with a partner, they'll curate some stuff for you. So law firms can help with that, I think, quite a bit. There's a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman that I think is very valuable. It's invaluable in terms of if you want to take a critical look at how you're processing problems and where you may have blind spots in your own ability to process problems. It's a very good book to engage in that kind of self-examination. I do think management books can be helpful along the way. Byron, it's great to see you and thanks again for the time. Likewise, likewise, always good to see you.
0: Thanks for listening to the show you like what you heard hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows join our mailing list and sign up for premium content have a good one and see you next time